physical training, self-defense training, firearms training, situational awareness, and the warrior mindset. Welcome to the Condition One Podcast. This is a podcast. This is a podcast. Welcome to the Condition One Podcast. This is a podcast where we'll be talking about being ready. We'll also be speaking to victim survivors of physical encounters, how they dealt with the aftermath physically, mentally, and spiritually. And welcome to the Condition One Podcast with me, your host, John Riddle. And today we have a guest, Jason Brick. Uh, Jason has spent half of his adult life as a martial arts teacher, including a stint coaching the karate team at a high school in Japan. For the first or for the past 15 years, he has also worked as a journalist and a freelance writer. On his podcast, The Safest Family on the Block, he combines the two to interview subject matter experts from across all fields about how to better protect our children. Jason, welcome to the podcast. John, thank you so much for having me. Great to have you, man. Uh, I know you're a busy man. We talk pretty often. I've been on your podcasts about the uh, the safest family on the block. Uh, being as busy as, and, and you already told me, you're already up super early and took your wife to the airport today. So let me ask you, uh, and this is the question I ask everyone when we start out. Was, do you have a specific ritual that you might do to start your day? Well, I did. I recently changed it where I had a, there was a, playlist of songs that really get the blood flowing and I'd get up and I'd sneak out of the bedroom uh, so as not to wake my wife up then have a few minutes on my own get a little sweat going then it would be time to get my youngest son up cook him breakfast checking with him and then he'd go and then I'd have a I have a workout routine that I do and then I'd get to work okay excellent excellent yeah. all right so you, you spoke about in your bio uh, that you were a martial arts teacher what styles did you teach so my home art is Kenpo. Kenpo, okay. Kenpo Karate. And I've been doing that since the early 90s. Uh, I came to that from a, from a wrestling background, high school, a little bit in college. And so I've done a lot of teaching in stand-up fighting communities about adding some grappling, especially grappling escapes. Okay. You know, yeah, every Taekwondo school, every Kenpo school these days since UFC happened, they have somebody come in and do like a four-hour seminar about how they can get good at grappling which seems to be a mistake because if you're a Taekwondo black belt, the last thing you want to do is go roll with some guy who's been doing jujitsu for four years. Right. What you want to do is know how to get up off the ground if somebody takes you down. Okay. And that's what I've been teaching adults most recently outside of the podcast and those, those things. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, you, you were a teacher in the martial arts at a high school in Japan. Um, Tell me, what, what was that experience like? And is the teaching, was your teaching different there in Japan as it was, in, or as it is in the United States? Are they, is there things being done differently there? Yeah, it's very, very different. Um, I went there originally as an English teacher. Mm-hmm. And then as my first year contract expired, I got a, approached by a guy who was the son of somebody who owned a private high school and who was actually an alumni at the same college I went to, okay. <laughs> oddly enough. And they needed a karate coach for their team. And the, the coaching was a very, very 
high school sports coaching, right? The buildings a little bit, looked a little different. The campus was very traditional Japanese in nature. The dojo had tatami mats and all of that, but it was it was the same kind of coaching that you do for basically any sport anywhere. Uh, the school's the school's vibe was very different. Teaching in the classrooms was very different. Some of them those things were good. Some of those were not so good. Okay. Where the student body was more invested in their education, the tradition that the students clean their classroom was something that I think that we could benefit from here in the United States. Right. On the other hand, um, physical abuse of the students was just part of the culture. Really? Where it was in the back, mouthing off, the Japanese teacher there in class with me would literally smack them. And I, I'm not a huge fan of that. I think that as adults, we have the resources not to bully children. Mm-hmm. But overall, it was, a, it was eye-opening in both ways. Okay. Now, you're, the martial arts side of it, when you were teaching, uh, was there, was it mostly Japanese kids? Yes, it was entirely Japanese entirely. children. I think there was one Korean exchange student. Okay. And it was art style Japanese for the local tournament scene. Over there, karate tournaments. You'd have a high school kid who did karate the way that we have a high school kid doing wrestling or, or volleyball. Okay. So there was a season of competition and a number of tournaments and whatnot. Okay. How intense for these high school kids was their training, their martial arts training. So that's the interesting thing about going to Japan to train. And I'm sure that's true of people who study Kung Fu who go to China to train or people who go to Korea to train. It's a little disappointing at first because, and it's not because the kids in those classes or the adults who go to the dojos outside are really less intense than anybody else. It's just that they're less intense than a guy who traveled to another country and uprooted his life because he was passionate about martial arts. Mm -hmm. Right. right. They're, they're about as passionate as any other serious athlete at the high school level. Okay. All right. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You're a journalist and a freelance writer. How did you get involved yes. in that? So I had always had a lot of feedback. This is actually the funny story, right? Where, you know, I, one of my earliest memories is pretending I knew how to write when I was three or four years old, thinking up stories and just scribbling on a piece of paper. Okay. Got, I got attention for being pretty good at writing from a young age. I was published in middle school, paid the first time in high school. My two best friends in high school, one of them was a New York Times bestselling nonfiction author. The other one was a uh, technical writer. Went to college, got some very good feedback and some very good mentoring from my uh, professors. And so, of course, I went into an entirely different field the second I graduated. <laughs> Uh, but while I was running my karate school, I was doing my own press releases, my own ad copy. I had a column in a local paper. I wrote for Black Belt Magazine a couple of times, wrote for uh, Natma Maya's uh, in-house industry magazine, things like that. And then when I closed my school, and for me, it was just a matter of once my kids were of the, an age that they were going to school, I wasn't being the dad I wanted to be having an evening and weekends job. So transitioned out of that, sold my school, and I had enough of a portfolio of these articles and website copy and ad copy that I was able to transform that in about a year into a full-time writing gig. Excellent, excellent. Um, when we first met, the first time we met, you interviewed me. Yes, sir. In California at the uh, Paul Vunax uh, camp, at one of the camps we had attended, yeah. correct? On the beach. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And then uh, I believe you did the brief on me in Black Belt Magazine for the 2012 Correct. 
Yeah. I, okay. Of the year, I I would have the honor of uh, doing your profile and Ron, Ronda Rousey's profile. Ah. Okay. That. Excellent. Excellent. So we do go back a little bit. Yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. So how would uh, how would somebody get into that field of writing? Say somebody wanted to write articles for a magazine or they wanted to write a how-to book or an e-book or something like that. How would they, how would they get into something like that? Well, one of the really interesting things about the profession is over the last 10 or 15 years, it's changed completely. And there are a lot of opportunities. Reason being that with internet and on-demand publishing, you could go and write for somebody, write for a magazine, do a book that gets picked up by a publisher, or you could just write your own stuff and put it directly onto the market. And those are two very different paths. Uh, for people who want to write for a magazine, for instance, or get some articles out there, the best thing to do is what's your hobby, what's your profession, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it is, whether you're a martial artist, whether you're a coder, whether you like knitting, you like brewing beer, you go into the shop that serves your hobby where you get your supplies. And there by the register, there's a rack of about six to eight magazines about your hobby. Right. And those are written by hobbyists which means that they're not that well-written. So if you're somebody who can write pretty well and know the hobby, go find the name of the editor, send them an email, send them an idea for an article, and they'll get back to you pretty quickly. Okay. And then those are pretty easy to turn into repeat gigs if you turn in on time and you can write pretty well. I see. So that's the fastest path to getting a paid credit as a writer. And then from there, once you have one, it's pretty easy to start um, getting the momentum rolling on that. Okay. Now, if I hear a lot about self-publishing, how does that mm-hmm. work? So self-publishing has been around for a very long time. They used to call it vanity publishing mm-hmm. you know, forever. You could write a book and then go pay a press to make a run of a hundred or 500 copies. Right. Uh, since the mid two thousands, some technologies have changed where you can print just one book relatively cheaply. Mm-hmm. And so, the printing infrastructure and the distribution infrastructure through, say, um, Kobo or Amazon, of course, is one where you can write a book, format it, hire somebody to do a cover or do it your own if you're artistically, you know, artistically inclined, and then put that up on the internet for people to buy either as an ebook or as a print book through Amazon or from your own website. And the nice thing about that is that you are in complete control of every aspect of the book bad part about that is you're in complete control of every aspect of the book and it's easy to screw up okay <laughs> right uh, and there's a lot of people out there who put out a book but you know they weren't as good an editor as they thought they were or they didn't really understand what makes a book cover work and it, it can be a little embarrassing and, and it can cost and waste a lot of money if you do it wrong on the other hand, you see a lot of people who have a lot of success, and this includes in the martial arts and self-defense industry, where they'll write a book about their expertise and pay to have a good book designer make it look good, pay to have a good cover, pay to have an editor take out all the typos. And then that becomes the ultimate business card. Gotcha. Right? You become literally the person who wrote the book on the subject. And you can have it in the back of the room for folks to pick up if they're when you do a seminar, give a presentation, or you can leave it with a potential client who's interested in, in maybe coming on board, whatever service you give. So there's a lot of models there. Many of them can work pretty well. Very interesting. Very interesting. So the ebook is that a quick modern day way of getting information out, or is it where you would just 
what I picture you would be doing is sitting down at the computer and you're typing and you're writing a book. I mean, like a, a book and versus an ebook. First off, tell me the difference between the two and which one would, for a beginner writer, which would be the easiest route to go to get them started? So an ebook versus print book. A print book is made on a dead tree. It's the kind of books we grew up reading. An ebook is a book that's online. It exists electronically. And you download it as a file and you read it on your Kindle or on your tablet or on your laptop or on your phone. Okay. And uh, ebooks, one of the advantages of ebooks is that they can be of any length at all, right? Where a print book that's too thin feels really chintzy. Okay. And a print book that's too thick is going to fall apart because we just don't have glues that are strong enough to keep all the pages in if it I gets see. too big. Okay. Uh, where an ebook can be five pages to a thousand pages. In fact, I have uh, both kinds of ebooks out on my on my Amazon where I have a book of a thousand and one martial arts inspirational quotes with a one quote on each page. Right. And then I also have a ebook that I just published about uh, myths for family safety, and it's only about twenty pages long. So you can do any length at all. In terms of what's easiest, uh, ebooks are easier because it eliminates a whole lot of pieces of the puzzle. You don't have to worry about page size in particular. Uh, there are limits on design so that you don't have to get fancy. And of course, you don't have to deal with the entire infrastructure and hassle of getting it actually made into a physical product. And then also, they're, they're cheaper to produce. So you can give them away as loss leaders for your business, send them to friends to review, send them to professional reviewers. And once you've made one ebook, it costs exactly as much to sell uh, 10,000 of them as it does to sell one because you're not creating a physical product. I understand. Okay, excellent. So tell us about the safest family on the block. I know a lot of work has gone into this, uh, a lot of interviews have gone into this. Um, with subject matter experts, <clears throat> we we had spoken a couple times. Uh, tell me about that. Can you, if you could tell our listeners about the book uh, and about your YouTube page. Absolutely, and this and you've been on. And this was this came out of my coming to parenting with a martial arts background, with a safety and security background, and realizing how little you know my time on the deck had to protect a small child, and then going from there into how the the stuff that we like to train for, you know, the shooting and the stabbing and the kicking and the punching and the blocking and the dodging. Yeah, in the off chance that that happens, that's going to be important. But the everyday stuff, like staying in decent shape so you don't have a heart attack in your 50s right. and making sure your fire extinguisher charged and knowing basic first aid. And these all turn into this podcast where I'll get on there and use that lens that I have as a martial artist, a parent, and a journalist and bring on one week, it'll be, your first episode on there was you, we talked about hardening your house as a target in terms of making it less attractive as a target in terms of making sure the doors were secure, film on the windows, and then setting up you know, ways to get in and out, rally points in your own home. Mm -hmm. So I'll have you on one week, and then the next week it'll be a suicide counselor talking about signs of prevention, and then I'll have a paramedic in to talk about the things parents can do or stop doing so that they see kids less. And then the next week it'll be a nutritionist. And just anybody who can give any kind of information to help us keep our kids safer, we bring them on the show and I, you know, I wring the knowledge out of them like they're a sponge. Perfect. Now, who's the most interesting person you've had on there as, as far as the topic is concerned? Well, you, John, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going there. <laughs> but so who, who? It's, it's really hard to tell. A couple of the most interesting ones. I spoke to a woman from a company called PAX. 
And what they do is they train teachers on classroom management and behavior management. Ah, okay. And it's very academic, but they're, they're the only one that I found that was data-driven. They didn't come to their idea about how a classroom should be from what they had learned or what they thought of or what their professor told them in class. They just went deep on the studies, you know, mm-hmm. 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 subject studies and found, okay, well, this is what clearly works and this is what clearly doesn't work most of the time mm-hmm. and developed a system based around that. And it was a very intelligent viewpoint of it. Um, her name was Carmen, Carmen Irving, I think, uh, with PAX. And she was in on uh, the previous season before the current one, so season six. And one of the things that was interesting was a lot of the very small details, the level of detail that they and thought they put into it. An example that's both, you know, very, very telling, but kind of, kind of sad was, you know, in schools a lot, they'll use different signals to get kids' attentions when it's time to, you know, stop forcing around and pay attention to the teacher. And one that's very common is to clap some kind of code, right? Like, I mean, the kids go, right? Okay. So the PAX people actually issue every teacher that they work with a harmonica, a little harmonica that hangs on their ID badge lanyard to play to signal. And the reason for that was they found that in basically you can count on in any class in America, at least one kid is going to have a very different association for this sound. Okay. That's going to be the sound of dad coming home or mom getting smacked. Got it. Mm -hmm. And that could immediately put them in a state where they're going to get a worse education for the next hour. Where, I mean, who does harm with a harmonica, right? Right. True. (laughs) And so that's, that was the length, the depth at which they were, they thought about their programs and researched their programs. And so it was a fascinating interview because of that. Okay. And I've noticed when I was on your website, you even go out as far as how to survive a forest fire. Yeah. So uh, tell me something (laughs) about that. I mean, I I live in Uh, South Florida. I live in South Florida. I'm in a concrete jungle. I got the ocean probably uh, five miles away from me, right? So the forest fire, uh, where do we come up with that? How did that come up? at that time, there was a fire about 40 miles from my house, and the sky was red, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we were having to keep the windows shut so that we'd have better air quality. And that was the second time in three years. So up here in Oregon, we have forest fires fairly regularly. And I'm fortunate enough to know a couple of wilderness forest fighters. And so it seemed like a topic to, that would be interesting and useful. It was certainly timely in that time. And so I asked them, and they gave me some solid advice. Now, I don't remember the five tips off the top of my head, but things like remembering that fire tends to go uphill. So if you're running away from a fire, choose to go downhill if you can. Oh, okay. uh, little things like that, understanding that just like in a house fire inside, is that air quality that is most likely to get you at first mm-hmm. if you're in a fully involved fire because that smoke's everywhere. Uh, one of the, yeah, and to find, finding a depression because the fire, fire and heat both rise. So if you can find a gully, or something like that, you can get in that gully and cover up with whatever you can, mm-hmm. and you're more likely to be safe. And then for a really hardcore and, again, kind of depressing idea that if if it's that bad, you put your kid on the ground and you lay down on top of your kid because a firefighter, forest fire is unlikely to burn long enough to get all the way through you. Ah, uh, okay. Which is, that's that's kind of a, that's, that's a pretty, pretty terrible thing to think about, but... You know, sometimes uh, the last gift a parent gives their kid is, you know, life where otherwise they wouldn't be. Sure. 
absolutely. Yeah, I've been on <clears throat> I've been on your YouTube page, and there's a lot of great information there. Uh, and there for our listeners, if you go on to uh, the Safest Family on the Block YouTube, uh, you'll get some. They're not long, okay, which keeps it interesting, right? It's not a uh, four-hour type of uh, podcast, but it's an informational uh, segment that's probably 45 to 50 minutes on different topics that, I mean, as a self-defense instructor and a law enforcement officer, some of the things you have on there, I didn't even think of, you know, and I thought it was very interesting going through these topics and listening to these people who have a lot of knowledge on what they're talking about with you. You know, I think it's a great thing that you're doing. Now, the new book, tell me about the new book you just launched today. Yeah, so this is uh, There I Was When Nothing Happened. And this came directly from conversations with you and other of the high-speed, low-drag, aerodynamically efficient, uh, combative types, you know, with military history, law enforcement history, long-time martial artists. And one of the through lines came from all these interviews was how much none of you really wanted to get into a fight. And, it, and I realized that, you know, in the martial arts and the self-defense instruction in, in our industry, we spend a whole lot of time about, okay, what do you do if a guy punches you? What do you, if a guy, what do, you do if that if that fist is coming in, if that knife is coming at you? But so little of our time on our deck and very little time in the books and the training videos on all the things that we can do so that that punch never comes or that we're in the, you know, we're getting into our car when that first punch gets thrown in the bar. Mm-hmm. And so what I was able to do is more than 40 people, including you, telling us some story from their life about a time they used a skill like awareness, like evasion, like self, um, self-deprecating humor or de-escalating language to stop violence before it started. And I've just been thrilled and pleased and humbled at the quality of people who, are co- who contributed a story and of the reception it's had so far. Excellent. Excellent. And how can people get a hold of this so we're on kickstarter right now which is a way of pre-ordering books where you go on and get there's books gadgets movies all kinds of things and kickstarter will show somebody the proposal for a project and then if you think it's a good project you can basically pre-order it and then when enough people order then the kickstarter if if not enough people order and there's not enough money that comes in to produce the product then nobody gets billed for anything and y'all go your merry way. But if you get the funding goal that is set that can make the product happen, then everybody's money goes to the producer of the product and then they produce the product. Um, our funding goal, we actually, we started last Tuesday, Tuesday the, what's that, the 22nd, Tuesday the 22nd of February. Our goal was $1,200 and we, uh, we got that in the first 47 minutes. We're trending of today up to f- very near 400%. So we're gonna be able to produce a hell of a book. And it's, I'm very much looking forward to see what comes next. Because again, the folks who've come on board are just just top-notch professionals. Like yourself, like Nick Hughes, um, Richard Dimitri's coming on. Okay. Uh, Tony Blower's going to be involved. Don Armstrong, Beverly Baker, just a lot of really smart, really passionate people giving their time and expertise that they won, you know, in the heart, sometimes in the hardest of ways. That's fantastic. It's great to hear, man. Uh, wish you all the luck on that. And Jason, how can people reach you? How can they reach out to you if they want to make contact? So you can find me on Facebook. There's a handful of Jason Bricks. I'm the only one that repeatedly talks about uh, martial arts and Dungeons and Dragons because I'm a huge nerd. <laughs> okay. 
you can find uh, Save His Family on the Block on YouTube. You can find the book at Kickstarter under There I Was When Nothing Happened. And anybody who wants to email me at brickcommajason at gmail.com. Uh, spell the comma out. So it's B-R-I-C-K-C-O-M-M-A-J-A-S-O-N. I thought it was funny until I had to keep explaining that you don't put the comma in. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, because I'm sure there's people that put the actual punctuation mark in there, right? Yeah, or they give me a funny look because most people know that there's no commas in the email. So like, dude, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Excellent. Hey, uh, I want to thank you for coming on board and talking to me. And I wish you all the best of luck with the book. And again, uh, Kickstarter for the book and the safest family on the block on the YouTube page. You get a lot of great information from uh, some very smart people that Jason has interviewed over time. All right. Jason, thank you very much. It was great talking to you. And we'll hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, John. It's always a pleasure. All right. Take care, sir. Take care. Bye-bye.